Expertise doesn't come from having access to information. Expertise comes from being able to make sense of this welter of information. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. Welcome to another episode of Flip My Phone Podcast. As it's been buzzing in the community, I have one of the favorite. I asked this probably two months ago. Who would you want to see on the podcast? And one name that kept coming up was Seth Godin and Daniel Pink. So we had Seth Godin last week, and, and this week we have Daniel Pink. So I think the community is on for a treat. So Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm a very good second choice behind Seth. Especially <laughs> everybody's first choice. <laughs> well, I don't think it was a first or second. Those two names were really, really high on the list. And what's interesting is... If your audience didn't pick Seth ahead of me, then I don't even want to continue this conversation because <laughs> they obviously have no judgment. <laughs> that is awesome. And it was pretty awesome, like having the conversation on marketing as a topic yeah. even after he's written so many things. So really interesting. And most people like, you know, again, in the audience already knows you haven't written the book Drive, Sell is Human, The Whole New Mind, and your latest book, When. Like, it's, it's, it's phenomenal what you've been doing and how to be researching. And I asked this morning, what are the questions you want to ask? And there are like thousands of the comments. So I'm going to ask some of the questions from it. Okay, before, cool. before we get started, I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself and, and a fun fact. And a fun fact. Okay. So a little bit about myself. Well, I'm a writer. I have been working for myself as a writer for 20 years or so, and written six books. What I try to do is write books that are sort of at, at the intersection, at the intersection of, say, a business book, but also a science book. I try to write books about big ideas, but also books with takeaways. So that's what I, that's what I try to do. I do it here where I'm talking to you, Sangram, in my office, which is the garage behind my house. I have uh, three kids, one wife, and the fun fact is that when I was in high school, you know, like there's a lot of, I grew up in central Ohio. And so high school sports are pretty popular and like a mm. fairly big deal. I was a, you know, all league, all-star, I think three years in a row wow. in a sport called in the know, which is basically like college bowl or jeopardy. <laughs> oh my so that God. is my big athletic triumph. Yeah, I love that. How many times have you ever shared that? Oh, I don't know. Not that often. You asked me, I said, you know, you, your listeners might not know that you and, I, you and I talked for like maybe 60 seconds before we got on. You said, you got to share a fun fact. And I'm like, oh, crap. I don't know a fun fact. I'm not a very fun guy. So I go back to when I was 16 years old and I was an all-star on In the Know. It was actually a show. It was a television show. It was actually televised. Mm. Uh, and, and I was pretty good, partly because I was overconfident and very quick on the buzzer. <laughs> I got to go back and take a look at some of these things because I think this, I hope know. all of the, I hope all of those videotapes have been destroyed, <laughs> but if you're interested, go to the archives of WBNS TV channel 10 in Columbus, yeah. Ohio. That is really, really cool. All right. So you, one of my favorite books of all time from you is to sell is human. No, thanks. And the reason is because I'm a marketer at heart. That's what I think about. And I always felt, Selling is somebody else's job. 
and I'm kind of, you know, the audience, as you know, is mostly B2B marketing and sales and, you know, marketing gives leads to sales and sales closes. Like that's the standard thing. You made me realize in this book that everybody is selling something to someone all the time. Totally, totally. I'd love for you to expand on that. Yeah, and we have some, I mean, we did some, for this book, I did some research on that where, where we, you know, we did a big survey asking people what they do all day at work, which is actually a, I think, a pretty interesting question because I had always had the hunch, you know, spending all these years writing about work and organizations, I had always had the hunch that when you look at something like a job description, so, so like you get a job description and then you get the job, that the way that the job was described bore very little resemblance to what people actually did on the job, you know, and, and I always was kind of intrigued by that gap. And so I wanted to know what do people do all day on the job? And so based on some research, I found out that people are, if you ask people this question in different ways, what they do, give them a new set of vocabulary to, to talk about this in some sense, get at the truth of actually how they spend their time. Uh, what you find is that people spend an enormous amount of time on the job, basically trying to get someone to give up something else for something they can offer. Okay, so it could be like, hey, join my team rather than another team to do this project. Right? Give up that other team to join my team. It could be you're a boss trying to get your employees to do something differently or do something in a different way, right? It could be you're, trying, you're an employee trying to get your boss maybe to stop doing something. And if you go to the guts of, of what people actually do all day, a huge portion of it is kind of sort of like selling. Now, it's not the cash register isn't ringing necessarily in all these cases, but it, it is something very similar to, to that. And when you start thinking about that, you realize like a big element of any job is selling stuff. And, and again, it's, it's not selling in the way that we think of it where, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm cold calling a big company and I want to try to get a meeting with the CIO because I have a computer system to sell or something right. like that. It's more like, you know, bosses sell, employees, we're all just selling and influencing, persuading, cajoling, cajoling all the time. Yeah. We, we, I just came out of our uh, team meeting and it was that now that I reflect upon it, it was much bunch of it was like, hey, if you have, uh, if you take Paul, can I have Peter? And can I do these things? Like, you know, and if I think about it, it's all negotiating. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all kinds exactly. of things. All it's, all, it's all about basically, you know, trying to, I mean, not to strip all of the humanity out of it, but at some level, it is the theory behind neoclassical economics is that if you and I make an exchange, we'll both be better off, yeah. right? So if, if I say, Sangram, here's a pencil, give me $3 for the pencil, that you will be better off having the pencil and I will be better off having $3. And yeah. you have those kinds of exchanges going on constantly. And what this means, and I think people, so I think that's one, that's one idea in the book. The other idea in the book, which I think is something that has gone largely, I don't know, I want to say unnoticed, but it hasn't gotten the attention it deserves is, is the following. You know, oh, one reason that marketers like you sometimes blanch at, at sales is that, and one reason why, MBA programs, every MBA program teaches marketing and not every MBA program teaches sales, oh, right? No. Sales is not even in the, the, the exactly. curriculum. Exactly. But marketing is a required core, yes. right? So because we, we have this view of sales as the way to do that, you have to be kind of pushy, duplicitous, a little mm -hmm. sleazy. It's not for people who are especially that smart. It's all about polish. It's all about style. It's all about being smarmy and slick. And that ends up being a really, really foolish notion. And the reason is the following. 
that almost everything we know about sales, okay, and we using the the big tent version of that word, mm. has come from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller had more information than the buyer. So when the seller has more information than the buyer, the seller can rip you off. That's yeah. what. So in most of commerce, since there was commerce, has been in a world where sellers had more information than buyers. Buyers didn't have many choices. Buyers didn't have a way to talk back. And so all of our kind of learned behavior, our muscle memory about sales is formed, I think, from being buyers in a world of information asymmetry. Information asymmetry is why we have the principle of buyer beware. You have to beware because the seller has a huge edge. Yeah. But the amazing thing that's happened in the last 10, 12 years or so is that that information asymmetry, which once defined what sales was, or at least was the foundation of what sales was, has been disappearing very, very rapidly. And that's a huge deal. I mean, it's basically, it's like for the whole of all of human commerce abided by, we were abided by rule X. And now in the last 10 years, suddenly it's like, oh, opposite of X is now true. And that's very hard for us to get our minds around. And you see this, I don't want to belabor this, but you see it in something like, like the quintessential American sales transaction, mm-hmm. uh, B2C, like, yeah. like whether you're in Atlanta where you are or Washington, D.C., where I am, is, is cars. And so if you think about, you know, 20 years ago, my wife and I went to buy a car, the Toyota dealer knew a lot more about cars, a lot right. more about Toyotas, a lot more about Camrys than, than I ever could, all right? Now, when we bought a car a couple years ago, my, like my wife literally went in, I mean, literally had the factory invoice price of the cars on that lot. We, she knew what every dealer in Washington was charging for this make of car. And that's a, it's just a very, very different world. And that world extends even into selling that isn't making the cash register ring. So you make a claim, a boss makes a claim at a meeting, the junior employee can fact check him on the phone. You, right. you try to hire somebody to work at your company and tell, him, tell her that, oh, this is a great place to work. We're very collegial. Well, she can then go on glassdoor.com to see whether you're, you're full of it. I, I think one of the interesting things that's happened is, is how the, the dating market has been changed mm. by technology. And one of the aspects of it is information parity. Like you can find out a lot more about your, the dating market at some level was information asymmetric. Yeah. And so, especially during the period when, you know, if you go from basically this period when say marriages were either arranged or your family had a big role in it and you were living in very circumscribed communities, that was a little bit of information parity. When that sort of faded away in many, many communities, then it was totally information asymmetric. And now you're going back to something of information, you know, closer to information parity. Yeah, I love that point. Could you think about a similar thing in a B2B context now, right? Oh, I think B2B is huge. I think it's the same thing. I mean, I think in some level, and I think it has different implications, maybe, Sanger, but I think it's very similar. So so let's, okay, so I'll give you, so let's let's take an example. Number one, I think the biggest example in B2B is this, that let's think about basically just the sales cycle, just the amount of time it takes from the time somebody says, hmm, I might need something to the time a deal is consummated, particularly in B2B, all right? Uh, In the old days, and and let's think about that first flicker of thought as zero on the timeline and 100 as the consummation, all right? At that that point, you know, 25 years, 20 years ago, the the flicker is, you know, is, is step one and then the consummation is step 100. The prospect would arrive at like stage three or four out of 100. Right. Now that prospect can accumulate huge amounts of her own information and come in at like 
point, you know, come in at, at, at the hash mark of 60, 65, 70. And so they're coming in armed with all kinds of information already. So that's one really, 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 really big thing. I think that's huge. And so what it means, and again, a lot of this goes back to information. So what that means for B2B sales, if you have your prospects coming in far, 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 far later in the sales prospect, when they're accumulating some of your own information, it's this, that it actually changes the notion of expertise. Mm. B2B sales is in part about expertise. And expertise throughout white collar work for a very long time was defined like this. I'm an expert because I have access to information that nobody else has. Why was a doctor an expert? because he had access to information that nobody else had. Why was that financial advisor, a stockbroker, an expert? Because he had access to information that nobody else had. Now, everybody has access to that information. So your role in B2B is not necessary. Expertise doesn't come from having access to information. Expertise comes from being able to make sense of this welter of information. It's like you got people coming with all this information, and, you have, and your expertise is about how do you curate that information? How do you say, you know what, that's from a good source, that's not. Let me tell you, distill what all of this means. How do we make sense of this welter of information? How do we separate out what is wheat and what is chaff, if you'll pardon my cliche, or what is signal and what is noise? So that changes that. The other thing, which I think is super important and monumentally important for B2B, and forgive me for ranting here, is this, that it changes, I think, the central skill in, in sales. And let me explain what I mean by that. There are many people in sales who will tell you, I'm not really in sales. I'm a problem solver. Mm. Okay. And that's cool. You can be a problem solver. The yeah. thing is, it's just less important now because mm. today in this world, the surfeit of information, if you're in B2B sales and your customer or prospect knows exactly what their problem is, they don't need you very much. Mm. They need you for one thing. They need you to be one of two or three or four bidders to drive down the price. Right? So where are you more valuable? You're more valuable when they don't know what their problem is right. or they're wrong about their problem. Right. And so the skill has shifted from the skill of problem solving, which is becoming commoditized, to the skill of problem finding. Can you identify hidden needs? Can you identify latent problems? Can you see around corners? And so fundamentally in B2B, like B2B salespeople have to go from accessing information to curating information from solving existing problems to identifying hidden problems. This is why when you look at B2B sales, I actually think today B2B sales is essentially a form of management consulting. It it isn't even sales. It's in the traditional sense that it is basically management consulting. And what you have to do in B2B sales is go into a prospect, you know, and say, and understand their business and say, I understand your business. I understand what you're trying to accomplish, what your strategic imperatives are, what the holes are and things like that. And I am going to analyze your business and come up with ways to help you run your business better, which is basically what McKinsey does, what BCG does, what you know, all of these management consultancies do. I love that. I'm so glad you went on a little bit of rant on that because I think the whole notion of sales, and I don't know how much you know about Terminus, but we launched this whole idea of account-based marketing, which is In B2B, the title of the salespeople is an account executive. And, you know, in my experience at Pardot and Salesforce and other, we've always given leads to sales and wondered, why don't they work on my leads? Well, because they're not the leads from the accounts they care about. And that's why they don't. And and the whole notion around that, your point on moving, going from being an expert 
to what I wrote down as consultant, and you talked about that as, as really what they're turning into as management consultant, I think it's, it's really, really big. Switching gears on this thing, I think some of the folks ask this question is like, hey, look, you wrote this incredible book when, right? And I think it's, it's kind of freeing for a lot of people, like, well, what is the most productive time and how do you do it? And even listen to your episode with Donald Miller recently on this whole idea. Could you unpack for us as this whole notion of when, the time, the productivity around it? Because a lot of people today are all have a laundry list of to-do list and they never get to the most important things that actually matter. And, and I think in this book, you, to me at least, you have distilled some of this stuff. Well, thanks. The answer to that, so there's a couple of questions embedded in there, but, but the main question is the answer has some nuance to it. It's basically mm-hmm. like, you know, like how do you configure your day? What's the best time to do stuff? So we can take two steps back and start with basically what we know from the science of timing. And, and the main thing here in that, in that book is that, si- that timing, we make most of our timing decisions based on intuition and guesswork or by default. That's a mistake. That's not how you do it. You should do it based on evidence. There's a very rich body of scientific evidence that gives us guidance about how to make systematically better, smarter, shrewder decisions about when to do things. So if we start at the unit of a day, here's what we know. The, the, the basically three big ideas in what we know about a given day, basically the unit of a day. Number one, our cognitive abilities, our brain power does not remain static over the course of the day. So true. My, like, I tell you, it's so true. But you know what? But most people, like, I didn't realize that until I started doing this research. So if I had different, felt different levels of cognitive ability, different levels of brain power during the day, I thought it was some kind of weakness or whatever. No, fundamentally, unequivocally, our cognitive abilities don't remain static over the course of a day, okay? Two, and these changes can be dramatic. So the difference between the daily high point and the daily low point is significant. And then three, the best time to do something depends on what it is exactly that you're doing. Now, so, so that's what we know. And unfortunately, a lot of business is the, the premise of the way we do things in a given day in an office, in any kind of workplace setting. Premise is that, oh, cognitive ability just goes straight like that. It doesn't really matter. But that's not true. And so here's what we know. Now, it, it gets nuanced and things like it gets nuanced. So some of this depends on what's called a chronotype, which is basically uh, an idea from chronobiology, which is studies the chrono meaning time, biology, study of life, studies our biological rhythms. We know is that some people naturally are having have a morning chronotype, uh, early chronotype. Some people have a later chronotype. Some people naturally wake up early and go to sleep early. Other people naturally wake up late and go to sleep late. Most of us are in the middle somewhere. And so what we know is that for people who do not have late chronotypes, basically the people who are people who are not night owls, we move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Peak early in the day, trough in the middle of the day, recovery toward the end of the day. And now people who are owls, more complicated, but they hit their peak much, 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 much later in the day, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., 8 p.m., 11 p.m. So here's what we know. During the peak, again, which for about 80% of us is the morning, essentially. Mm-hmm. We can't say with granularity, like some of these productivity hack sites say, oh, everybody should start work at 4.30 or 5.30. We don't, that's not true. So during our peak, which again, which for 80% of us is the morning, for 20% of us is much later in the evening. That's when we're most vigilant. We're highest in vigilance. Vigilance means we're able to bat away distractions. That makes it the best time for what social psychologists call analytic work, which is work that requires heads down, focus, attention, writing, or analyzing data, et cetera. During that trough period, which for most of us is 
the early to mid-afternoon. There's all kinds of research showing big declines in performance during that time of day. And so instead of trying to do your, you talked earlier about your most important work, instead of doing your most important work during that trough period, you should do your least important work during that trough period. So let me, let, let yeah. me double click on that. Like when you said that, hey, that's where your, your peak performance kind of drops during that time. Can yeah. You give an example of that, like, you know, because that time I feel like most companies think, well, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., is like the most important time of the company actually, quote unquote, is done because that's when the most meetings it are. Depend. It depends. It really depends. But what we know is this, is that if you, if you look at basically every domain, the early to mid-afternoon, there are declines in performance in every domain. You see this in, te- in, in studies of standardized tests among school children. Kids who take standardized tests in the afternoon score lower than kids who take it in the morning. Kids, a big study out of the LA Unified School District of kids studying math. Kids who have math in the morning learn more math, period, full stop, not even close. You look at performance in hospitals and in healthcare, it's unbelievable. So anesthesia errors are are four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. If you look at the prescribing unnecessary antibiotics, far more likely in the afternoon than in the morning. Hand washing in hospitals deteriorates uh, significantly in the afternoon. If you look at judge and jury decision making, some very alarming data about how uh, judges and juries actually are less deliberate, more likely to resort to racial stereotypes when they deliberate in the early to mid-afternoon than when they deliberate in the morning. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. Big decrements in performance there. And so, you know, what you're better off doing there is your administrative work. We all have stuff that we have to do that doesn't necessarily require massive brain power or creativity. So, now, again, we'll talk about, like, again, the reality check here is that not everybody has full control over their schedule. Right. So we can get to that in a, in a moment, but let's, let's lay this out. Now, the recovery period, which for most of us is, you know, 80% of us is late afternoon and early evening. During that period, what you see is you see elevated mood. Our mood is actually fairly high, but our vigilance is not. Our vigilance is down. But that combination can be useful for a lot of different things. High mood and low vigilance means you're a little bit mentally looser. So a lot of research has shown makes it a better time in many cases to do certain kinds of work that requires lo- that mental looseness. So iterating new ideas, brainstorming, coming up with not obvious solutions is better done during that period. And so, again, you know, the, the, the design principles are relatively straightforward. You should do your analytic work during your peak, your administrative work during the trough and your insight work during the recovery. Now, people have to figure out the specifics of that on their own. but and, and again, owls are an exception because the owls who are wildly discriminated against in traditional companies, they should be doing their heads down analytic work at night. Yeah. Six at night, seven at night, nine at night, 11 at night, not at eight in the morning. Right. So the, the problem is that we don't take these things into account when we schedule meetings. We don't take these things into account when we think about our own individual performance. My hunch is that Many of your listeners, much as I do, as I did for a very long time, which I've tried to stop doing now is, you know, I'm more of a lark than an owl. So I should be doing my heads down work in the morning. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for a big chunk of time, maybe for 10 or 12 years, I would first thing I did when I came into my office in the morning was, was go over my email, which is yeah. a total waste. Like, you know, you shouldn't be doing like, like I'm the bet it's, it's my best time cognitively and I'm using it for my least important work. Yeah. No, I, I feel like myself, like, so I'm, I like wake up at typically 5, 5 a.m. Oh, wow. It is so hard to not check emails, right? It is, it is actually like physically hard. So I have to keep my phone 
in the bathroom. So all I do is to switch off the alarm and then go down, do the best thing, which is to write, to think. Or yeah, that's a good way to do it. I do the same thing on writing days. I don't bring my phone into the office. It is uncool because it's so, like, I'm so connected. My email yeah. is, is out and stuff. So, so and then at 7 a.m., like, okay, that's when I'm, like, ready to go. I drop my kids to school. And yeah. now 7 to 9 is actually my fun time because I feel like I've done some productive work. I've added value to whatever I needed to do. And then probably right. the most important thing. And then after 9 to 4, I, I feel like I'm in meetings and I'm just there to support and help. I never get to the... The, I think the recovery phase, because with kids and stuff, as you said, we don't have all the control in the world, but I don't think I ever hit a truly taking the time to think about recovery. So you made me think about something totally different there. Yeah. I mean, do you, but you experience a trough, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Oh, huge. Yeah. 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 And the thing is, it's like, I mean, just for full disclosure for your listeners, I and mean, we're talking right now at, an, at a suboptimal time. It just yeah. happened to be the time that I could, I could fit this in, but I actually factor that in to this conversation because I knew I'd be talking to you and I took a break right before this because yeah. I knew because because breaks can be an antidote to yes. some of this stuff. What I didn't want to do was like be doing by doing my work, you know, heads down, coming into this trough period and then immediately switching things on and talking to you. I pre, you know, I'd be even less articulate than I am right now. And so you're being great, man. And so, you know, again, if we factor these things into our decisions about what to do at the right time of day, we'll get more work done and We'll get better work done. Better work done. I love that. All right. So I took like three pages of notes on this one. So I'm going to share maybe two or three big ideas. And then Daniel, I love for you to share like this, a challenge for everybody to, to take home with and try to do in their life. So one shout out to Noah, Ethan and Sebastian for some of the questions we talked about. For me, the, one of the big ideas that you shared was this thing that has come up, but I've never thought through is this idea of sales not being in, in schools and colleges and taught at all and how important it is part of everyday thing. And I don't know what else we all could do, but I feel like sales need to be a discipline and there's a way to do it. And most people struggle with it and you're on the job training around that. Yep. And marketing on the other hand is extremely, I feel in the four P's are like the four P's and you're talking about it. And what we do today is, is so different. So there's so much things that need to connect on that part, but uh, it never really hit me that sales is not at all part of anybody's academic career. And all of a sudden you become a salesperson. Yep. And part of it is that we, we looked at our noses at it in part because, you know, in a world of information asymmetry, what, you know, it was possible to be duplicitous. And, but what we should be doing is we should be thinking about sales in a different way. Sales is basically, how do I take your perspective? Yeah. How do I understand where you're coming from? How do I understand your needs? And how do I do something to help make your life better off? That's yeah. it. And, and I think that that's a very portable skill. You could, you could use it if you're selling software, you can use it if you are, if you are, a nurse. You can use it if you are a physician. You can use it if you are a teacher. Yeah. I can definitely use it as a husband on some of the sure. planning. <laughs> totally. No, you can use it in your personal, in your personal life too. Cause again, like, you know, like one of the cornerstones of being able to persuade influence successfully in this world of information parity is an ability that I like to call attunement, which is, can you attune yourself to someone else? Can you see yeah. things from their point of view? Can you take their perspective? and then find common ground. We don't have very much power to coerce people into doing things, either inside of a company or in the marketplace. You can't force people to do stuff. So in some ways you need the opposite ability, which is get out of your own head, into someone else's head, see the world through their eyes, and try to find common ground. Love that. 
the other big idea I feel like, and there's just so many, so I'm going to have it in the show notes, is this whole idea of sales job turning from being an expert to being a consultant. And you call well, it like- part of it is this. Basically, I think you're still an expert. It's just the nature of expertise has changed. Mm. So expertise used to be about having access to information that nobody else had. Yeah. That's what it meant to be an expert. Now, being an expert means can you sort through, yeah. curate, organize, make sense of this welter of information that everybody has. And, and I think that if you look at what B2B sales does, that, that's, that's a big part of it. Problem finding rather than problem solving is a big part of it. And in B2B sales, and I think together, those have made B2B sales essentially a form of management consulting. I mean, it's, I wonder, you know, I wonder five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we even will use the word B2B sales. Yeah. It'll be so clear that what the people who are in that function right now are doing is essentially management consulting. I love that. I love that. All right. So, I mean, again, and then the topic of when, like what's your most productive time around peak crafts and recovery? There's just so many lessons. I'll, I'll encourage everybody to go get this book when, because I feel like if you are in marketing or sales, you're in a leadership position and you're trying to manage your expectations of what needs to be done. I personally feel like I'm already has already have a long to-do list that I'm never going to get to and finish through. And the only way to get over that is that not look at that long laundry list as the first thing in the morning, but figure out the most important thing and figure out what time you can really focus that. And you actually could get more done. So I've started to do that once I started reading your book. It has really tremendously helped me personally to think about, okay, cool. focus on that, but not on that. Awesome. Um, I'd love for you to share a challenge with everybody listening to this podcast. I mean, I guess a challenge that I would offer to people would be, I mean, I'll just build on what, what, what you were saying, Sangram, is, which is, and something that I've done is, it's not my idea, but it's, it's something called the MIT, your most important task. So each day, what I like to do is I like to write down my MIT. What's my most important task that day? And it's, it's usually something that requires heads down focus. And so I tend to do it in the, so I'll do it in the morning, but what's my MIT. And I do that before I do anything else. And that is, that's a very, it's such an easy thing to do. It doesn't require any investment. I mean, I literally, I sometimes, I have a whiteboard. Well, it's a gray board right there that I sometimes will write it on. But a lot of times I just keep, I have a list of things to do during the day. And in the upper right-hand corner, I will write MIT colon, and then I'll just write down what it is. Do you do that a night before as to think about what do you want to do next day or do you do start? On good day? days I do, but usually I don't get around to it. <laughs> yeah, we do. I'm, I'm with you. I love the MIT concept. Daniel, can't thank you enough, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.